Hi, I'm Chris Shaffrey, the president of the AANS, and I want to invite you to Boston for our annual meeting, which is going to be held on April 25th through 29th, 2020. The theme of the meeting is the world of neurosurgery. It's going to be an exciting, informative, compelling meeting, and I strongly encourage you all to attend. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. All right, so today I have the great pleasure to be joined by uh, two of the people responsible for training me here at Rush University. Uh, one of my attendings, Dr. Ricardo Fontes, and one of my senior residents, Dr. Andre Bierfalon. Gentlemen, it is an honor to have you. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Thank you. Well, You're- thank you, JP. It's a pleasure to be featured on the podcast. So today, uh, what I wanted to talk to you two specifically about is a kind of a chip shot for me to come up with a topic on the subject of coming to America uh, when you've been trained in another country. Um, Both of you are from Brazil, trained in Brazil, completed training in Brazil, and then came here to America and established or are establishing yourselves as American neurosurgeons. So before we really dive into that, why don't you take a minute to tell us about your home country, your home program, and kind of paint a picture of what life in neurosurgery is like. Well, um, that's, a, that's easy because, you know, Andre and I, we come from the same uh, city in Brazil, Sao Paulo, which is uh, basically this metropolis with uh, 20 million people living in it, and we graduated from the same program. So um, we, we had some contact uh, while we were there, but we were, never, we were never really in residency or in the program at the same time. So um, I'm 41 now. Uh, I was uh, born and raised in Sao Paulo. And uh, in Brazil, it follows in European. Brazil follows in European track to medical school and residency. So, you know, basically, you graduate from medical school, uh, you graduate from high school, and uh, you apply for your professional education. And so, the um, you know, you, they're basically an entrance exam, and uh, the big exam is the one that admits you to public universities, which are free. And um, you take these exams, and then you may get in or not. And so um, you're, all of a sudden you may find yourself 18 years old and in medical school. So uh, that's what I did, and then I followed what was seen at the place uh, where I went to, the University of Sao Paulo, as the, uh, as the normal track. So I went through medical school, then went through um, to residency over there. And uh, for residency, there's also another series of uh, entrance exams, uh, and then uh, basically stayed at the same program during my entire education. So there was uh, six years of medical school and then five years of residency. So I, I have a pretty much similar story to Ricardo. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, we were kind of just different uh, gener- generations in, in terms of training when I was, so he was there for my uh, residency interview, but uh, 
when I started as an intern, uh, our first year resident, he was uh, already uh, coming uh, in, uh, to the U.S. to mm. be Dr. Trinamis' fellow. Uh, so we never we never overlap, but uh, I did the same thing. Uh, went to medical school and uh, neurosurgery residency training at uh, University of São Paulo, and then uh, after I finished training, worked for uh, almost two years as a neurosurgeon uh, there, and uh, and then uh, came to the U.S. for a, for a clinical fellowship. Okay, describe the hospital for us a little bit. Where you trained? <laughs> well, you know the the uh, so. We, we went to this, uh, the University of Sao Paulo, which is the biggest public university in, uh, in Brazil, really. And um, it had uh, the main hospital where we trained, especially during residency, is the tertiary care center for the University of, Health, uh, the University of Sao Paulo Health System. Over there. So they have a number of outpatient clinics. They have a secondary community hospital. And they have this tertiary can- uh, center, which is one of the five biggest hospitals in the world. It basically has 3,000 beds. So at the time when I got into the program, uh, that was 2003, we were taking four residents a year. Uh, now my understanding is they take six plus wow. rotators plus four uh, rotators from other Portuguese-speaking countries. So that's uh, they work essentially as a resident. So that makes it seven residents a year, which is probably the biggest neurosurgery program in the world. And um, it's basically, you know, there's universal health care, so... Anything happens to you, American, Brazilian, any nationality, any status over there, anything happens, you know, you get health care. And so um, there is, you know, Brazil is an interesting place because there is universal health care and it's chronically underfunded. You had these sort of ex- centers of excellence like this hospital, which, uh, you know, money was still scarce and, and whatnot, but you didn't really run out of antibiotics or things like that, and it was... You know, overall, it was very clean and that sort of thing, but it was packed. It was like, it was normal for, for me to have, you know, we used to run three services, actually four separate services within neurosurgery, and they had an ER service, which had patients admitted to the ER before they could get a bed or anything like that. They would stay in stretchers for, for a long time. And it got better over the years. My understanding is when Andre went through residency, that was not the case anymore, but it was still no, bad. it was still the case. It was still the case, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you, you would go, you would see, like, clinic would be would be held by a number of attendees together, and you'd have a clinic with uh, 100 patients in the morning, and then at noon, you had to basically remove all the patients from that area. Yeah, yeah. yeah and then it would be another 100 patients coming oh, in in the afternoon. So, wow. like, in the morning would be the spine clinic, and then the afternoon would be the trauma clinic. And so you're seeing like this, these masses. And uh, it was, um, you know, patients were overall very grateful to be there because they knew it was a center of excellence. And we had, you know, the, the quality of the neurosurgery that was being done there was very, very good. Um, but we just couldn't reach out. We couldn't reach everybody. You know, we, yeah. we had like huge waiting lists. Uh, you know, the spine waiting list that I'm more familiar with, it had more than 300 patients just waiting for years for surgery. Some going paralyzed, some not. Then uh, trauma, peds, everything else had a similar wait list for everything. Kind of uh, the, the, the cases were expedited, whether the patients were declining or it was very hard to have a purely elective outpatient case because uh, we used to treat, uh, we end up, Having to prioritize who had the worst pathology, so it, I think it was it, it was a very interesting place in terms of uh, the, the 
type of pathology we used to see. Uh, right. Which is uh, fairly uh, similar to county hospitals here in the U.S. It, it, that's exactly right. I mean, it, it, as far as elective pathology, see, for example, within neurosurgery, I did two cranioplasties within my whole training because you just couldn't compete for rooms. I mean, you have patients paralyzed, becoming paralyzed, you have patients declining, and nobody would do a procedure that was seen as essentially cosmetic. And at some point, we realized, well, we're graduating the, the residents without learning that procedure. So just throw in a couple. So they, they just will learn how to do it. But, uh, yeah, we, we just, uh, there, were, there were just far too many patients in, uh, for the space available. Well, that's, that's very interesting. We're, you know, we're sitting here in the middle of interview season, and all the applicants on the trail are talking about volume and case volume and, and uh, how it impacts your, your training. I, I can't imagine uh, training in a place with that kind of volume day in and day out. Um, so then, you know, this is where you grew, this is where you learned. Um, I'm interested at what point in your professional career, or I guess in your personal life, you started thinking about leaving Brazil, coming to the States. Was it before you even entered residency and this could be a vehicle to come here, or was it, you know, late in your training as you started envisioning your career? What was that process like? Well, for me, it started at some point during medical school. Um, you know, Brazil Brazil's an interesting place. Uh, you have the, the, very, the very wealthy living very close to the very poor. And especially Sao Paulo uh, is a very violent city and a very unstable country from an economic standpoint. And, uh, you know, basically uh, when I was going through medical school, I, um, you know, I could see life for physicians wasn't, wasn't really good. And especially I had a surgical inclination, I started to realize that, uh, you know, these physicians were overworked or underpaid, that there's a lot of corruption in these uh, surgical specialties. I mean, physicians derived a lot, if not the majority of their pay, from commissions from uh, implant company reps and that sort of thing, and uh, were, were asking for money on the side, and I was very uncomfortable with it. Mm. And so I started preparing myself to get additional training uh, in the middle of medical school. I mean, from the point I started buying my first books to study for step one, that was probably around 99, 98, and then to the point I arrived here, that was 10 years later. Wow. So it took me 10 years to prepare myself and get approved and, and eventually uh, come here. Was there anyone who had kind of done that process and gone before you? So it's interesting. There's no... There's no uh, nobody to teach you that, yeah. right? Especially for me, I, I sort of advise Andrea a little bit. But when I was there, there's some hearsay. Like you hear, you hear somebody from dermatology did it, or somebody from some other place. Internal so medicine. then, yeah, internal medicine did it, or some guy went and I didn't know it was going to be the United States. I mean, some guy went to France, some guy went to Germany, and so you had to go and try to get hold of this guy before email was available. So you have to go and you like stalking this guy in the dermatology clinic. There's a guy who did his residency at Jackson Memorial in, in Miami and I was just stalking the guy. And then you got bits and, and pieces of information here and there. And uh, one thing that really helped me to understand the system was the first aid series of books for, for step one and step two because then it finally presented the process in a relatively concise manner. But uh, you still were surprised, and you learned things. For example, step three: once you get farther along the process, it became a little, little bit more confusing. But uh, certainly, nobody within neurosurgery guided me. 
Well, that's encouraging to know that you're using the same textbooks down in Brazil that we all are in the American medical schools to get ready for the tests. Yeah, but, but keep in mind, this was before Amazon, so you couldn't <laughs> order these books. I mean, you had to go and stalk, and there was one library that imported these books back in Brazil, and yeah. you can, I couldn't pay for all of them, so you know, I went and bought a book every, like a couple, a book every couple months and so forth. And uh, Yeah, but it's the same exact material. So, yeah. Andre, was it about the same for you, or, or I so assume it was, you, you it was, benefited from Dr. Fonda, So, right? what, what I did was, I, I actually didn't have as much of a plan as uh, Ricardo did. Uh, mm-hmm. I thought about this, or maybe doing some sort of specialty training, but never really, was never really invested. And I, I took my uh, step one in the middle of medical school, kind of didn't really know why I did it. I think I was just... I had some time, I, I decided to do it. And then, uh, you know, I, I was studying to, for, for a residency entrance exam. So I took my step two right after I got the, before I actually started residency, I was on my vacation, I was like, I already studied, so I might as well just to sit for the test. And then I simply kind of, I wasn't gonna take step two CS, because it was too much stuff to do during residency. But uh, I was going to run out of that seven-year period that you have to complete uh, mm-hmm. all tasks. And and it was actually my wife that pushed me. She's like, oh, you ready to do it? Just do it. And, right. Uh, and uh, I ended up doing it, but uh, never really, like, uh, came up with a plan. I was like, well, what am I going to do with that? And then it was not until we I finished residency, and then I, I came and spent a couple months at uh, Scobay's lab doing dissections in New York, and then I was I started very started to get more interested in uh, doing some clinical training here, some specialty training. And that's when uh, I we we touched base and I emailed you. It's like, hey, how kind of try to get a sense how it works? Like, how do you find a clinical fellowship? And uh, Ricardo was very uh, very helpful and uh, it was a great resource for me because uh, as he said, there's there's not a lot of people. There's not a lot of people that uh, you can uh, yeah. reach out and. Uh, you know, it, it's funny that this sort of happened, JP, in a, in in an era when um, you know that I think the quality of the training that we got there and got here started to diverge because you see there's this big revolution in neurosurgeon medicine in general due to the advance in technology. So mm-hmm. these things happen at a certain pace, and now it's exponentially quicker. So if you think about how it went in the '70s and the '80s, and you think you know. Uh, Yasser Gill came from Switzerland, worked with like malice, developed bipolar coagulation, developed, you know, the microscope and whatnot, you know, that took 10 years for, you know, to become disseminated. And, you know, in terms of investment, that's not much. You can't assemble, you know, a microscope back in Brazil, you know, very cheaply. And we had those knockoffs over there uh, out of these eyes, microscopes and whatnot. But then in the, in the 90s and the early 2000s, you know, the things started to exponentially advance at a speed that they just can't catch up because the amount of equipment, the amount of resources, it's limited, is just, it's just not there. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. you know, we, I normally joke because I tell the people there in Brazil that, you know, at the university, we, we still do the best neurosurgery from 1995. <laughs> Because there's just no equipment. And, and that's even in Brazil, that's, uh, that's uh, bad. Because you see, again, because it's such a, an economically um, like diverse country, you have the extremely rich and the extremely poor, 
that these resources are actually available there within the private health system, but uh, we weren't getting exposed in training. Mm. So things like neuronavigation, I mean, the first time it showed up in our hospital was 2007. It was already the end of our training. And this is something wow. that had been been done here for years. And it was like that. It was uh, one neuronavigation system that you you would select you select the patient you needed. We didn't we didn't we never you had navigation for our cases. Oh, nothing. Uh, yeah. Unless you it's like oh it's a very tiny motor cortex uh, tumor that you want to do a small crany. That's that that will be the situation where we yeah. use navigation. Right. So and that came up in the end of my training. So what we did up to then and that's that's a funny thing. You can do that for ICHs and whatnot. We used to get an aspirin pill and taped to the head of the patient where we thought more or less the tumor would be. And then we would get a CT scan with the aspirin pill taped. And then based on the aspirin pin is radiopaque, so aspirin pill is radiopaque. So you would see in relationship to the aspirin pill, you say, well, it's a little bit off to the, to, the, to the side, a little bit off to the front, and that's where it is. Or we used other stuff. For example, ultrasound was very common over there. We used ultrasound a lot for mats and for tumors because that was available. So we had to make do with a lot of stuff. Like frame-based navigation is is a one-time investment. So a lot of people had their own frames and they just walked around with frames and applying the patient, then do, do the tumor. They had a, a concoction where they would put a laser pointer attached to a navigation frame. So the laser pointer would be sterile. I don't know if you ever got to see that. Laser pointer is sterile, goes on the navigation frame, and so they would point and the laser pointer would be pointing where the where the tumor was. So just like then you'd be operating around the laser pointer over there. So they had all sorts of goofy stuff just trying to make up. And well, I think it ends up uh, helping a lot with the creati- creativity, right? Oh, you become extremely creative, but and, and and that's a good thing, I think, for a surgeon, because you know anything that happens here in this Disney world of medicine, you know, you can get around all sorts of different problems. So you know, we had to sterilize. Like in you know, any case, here in school, there's open two, three, four drills. I mean, we had to re-sterilize drills. We uh, and the, the the drill bits. We had to re-sterilize. I mean, I we used to re-sterilize clips. Was that we're open for one patient, we're not used. I mean, there's a year there was shortage of uh, clips. Customs went on strike. We couldn't import clips. The patient died with the sabrac. He had to clip in Andrews. Go to the morgue, retrieve the clip, and so and so forth. I mean, you had to make do because otherwise people would die. But the, the thing is, you can only make do so much with creativity. And at some point, it started to diverge so much, especially in the subspecialty I wanted to do, spine. It just became impossible. I could not do fusions. I didn't learn how to do fusions. Well, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it was apparent to me by the end of my training that I needed fellowship training to, to complement that. And that's where the preparation really came in handy. Yeah. A few, well, when I trained, we, we had a... We had a Availability of spine instrumentation, and that was different. I think from uh, yeah. the years you trained, but still, it, it was it was limited, right? It's not like you have you get everything that you want all the time. Right. You open up your tray, and there's uh, all the sorts of screws you can imagine over there. They would say, "Well, we have this screw, and we have that screw. Like we have two screws yeah. you can select from it." So that's you know, by the time I finished, it was apparent to me that I wanted to do spine. Uh, it was. We came from a very cranial-heavy program. Spine was seen sort of a second-rate type of surgery, and uh, it's not. It can be extremely sophisticated if you dedicate yourself to it. And, but I, I, I knew I needed more training. So, so why America? Well, uh, there's the there's the language issue. So, um, but then but, again, I could speak German then. So, okay, so that, that's a good question. Did you both already speak English? When you entered your training, do, do people in Brazil tend to 
Yeah, they tend to be children. bilingual. Okay. I mean, if you okay. got if you got like private education during you know elementary school and high school, you'll be at least conversant. And uh, you know, I I I I thought I spoke very good English at the time, but I knew German too. But the thing is, um, you know, it was. Uh, I still think the volume here is so much bigger. Mm. You know, you have people. I, I inquired into going to Germany, and um, you know, the, you can do learn excellent mm. medicine and spine surgery there, but the the volume is just not there. It's nowhere comparable. So, there's somewhat. Uh, I mean, that's one of the things that pushed me coming here was the. Uh, there's still some mystique around uh, getting training in the U.S. that. Uh, my hope, my goal is to to actually acquire new surgical skills uh, in skull based surgery, but and go back, and, uh, and people value a lot saying that oh you're from Brazil you and you get advanced training in the U S and then you 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 go back that not only from uh, from a personal and, and skill standpoint but also from like a marketing standpoint oh and, absolutely uh, yeah and, uh, and, and the, it's a very com- São Paulo has a very very competitive uh, market uh, uh, for all medical fields but uh, but for surgery in particular it's, yeah it's very uh, there are too many neurosurgeons for uh, uh, for the population yeah wow. so you need to differentiate yourself somehow right so we, we kind of touched on this earlier um, and Andre you and I have spoken about this a few times but w- what's it like and, and how do you I guess internally deal with having been in practice in Brazil for a couple of years, and then to pursue this course, you come back here and you re-enter training. You, know, you, you drop your professional level, now you're answering to people again. That, I assume, has got to take a lot of discipline, a lot of patience, and a lot of uh, self-control. What, what's that like? You can start, it was Rick. Uh, so, it is, it's not easy, uh, but uh, we're not, when I my first year in the U.S., I, I worked as a fellow and I had a great uh, mentor, uh, great work work environment, and I learned a, I, l- I learned a lot. And uh, the fact that I was learning a lot of new things uh, that was something uh, very exciting, right? Regardless of your level of training, you whenever you're learning new things, you you just kind of you, you have to be open minded, right? You're here to learn, and it's pointless if you think you know everything and uh, and you're a complete neurosurgeon period and you have right. not, nothing else to learn I think we all we can all learn uh, it's like like a constant uh, personal development as surgeons uh, and then coming back uh, to residency so I I came to rush and people didn't like ex- with the exception of Ricardo that we knew each other but we never had worked together uh, people here didn't know me so you, you kind of have to Prove yourself, prove prove your your value, uh, uh, and in the first year it was very tough uh, for me. Uh, that's my ex- experience. I think the first year it was very difficult because you really have to internalize. Like, okay, this is my choice. I decided to to repeat training, uh, and uh, no one's obliged me uh, obliged me to, to do this, and. I have to do the time, and I, I might as well take advantage of this and yeah. learn whatever I can. And I, I can guarantee you I'm uh, um, much better surgeon than I was three years ago. And, uh, and, 
and I guess having this the, this mindset, uh, open mind, or trying to learn whatever you can. And I'll tell you, the, the type of spine surgery we do here at Rush, it's completely different than I've ever seen back in Brazil and here in the U.S. And uh, so I think having this uh, the mentality of uh, trying to learn as much as you can uh, really helps you uh, focus on your your goal and, uh, and long-term goal, I guess. Yeah, I think uh, same here. It's difficult to internalize, but one thing that made it a lot easier is really the group we have here at Rush. I mean, to, uh, you know, first of all, they're extremely competent. Um, then second, you know, they're the nicest people. I mean, to be taking orders from Dr. Trinellis is ridiculous. Like, you, I'll, I'll do that every day, and I'll do that. I do that today. So when Dr. Trinellis and both Dr. Byrne, um, you know, when I got here, I was the first fellow. There, was, there had, had not been a, a spine fellow before, and they had never had a foreigner working here. So, you know, I got here with Dr. Trinellis from Iowa. And, um, you know, you're right. I mean, you just have to prove yourself, and, uh, and it's understandable. I mean, you don't want some guy coming in from God knows where, you know, coming in and operating on your patients. You don't know if the guy can operate, if he can, if he can scrub or cannot scrub. And uh, we have situations where people showed up and they couldn't even speak English. So... Um, I think you have to understand their, their, their side, too, and uh, you prove yourself slowly but surely. You know, you're just there. Uh, as I tell every, every resident, you know, the key to, to medical success as a trainee is just the three A's, right? So uh, availability, affability, and the least important ability, <laughs> right? So it's, uh, you know, you do more and you see your patients. And for, you know, the, I remember that from the time I started until the day I had the first day I didn't show up at the hospital was eight months. So for eight months, I came to the hospital every single day, saw every patient. And that didn't go unnoticed. And uh, so it's, it, it really is an uphill struggle. I think every, every foreign medical graduate who comes here, uh, it goes through that uphill struggle. But it, um, you have to prove yourself. And, uh, but it's definitely worth it. Uh, I just like Andre said. I mean, I've, I'm a very different surgeon than what I was when I got here. I learned so much. I'm so grateful for these guys over here. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Andre. I, I say this to you almost every week, but having an attending for a senior resident, <laughs> even in the short time I've been here, it's that's a huge benefit for everybody below you. Um, so obviously, I want to respect both of your time, but uh, just to wrap up, Dr. Fontes, the uh, the Brazil stories are legendary among the program. Can you? Can you think of anything entertaining or, or particularly educational that sticks with you from your time back home? I mean, it, it, it was just, uh, it's, it's just a different environment. I mean, it's not, uh, I mean, it, it's from a different time, you know, mm -hmm. from uh, residents, you know, who had a lot more autonomy, uh, somewhat dysfunctional program, which, you know, there was a lot of, uh, uh, you know, it was very competitive. So because residents were selected purely on the results of a test, basically, you know, you have very extremely intelligent people who were very competitive, and the program sort of fostered this sort of competitiveness and uh, led to, to, to bad situations. They fortunately got, uh, you know, curbed over the years. And I like to say I was part of curbing the process when I became faculty over there, when I became pre preceptor, because it was definitely inadequate. And so, I mean, it, it used to be that the routine used to be, be on call, like, uh, routinely two, three nights uh, straight, like you weren't leaving the hospital for two, three days, wow. was routine. Uh, then my record in the hospital was six days, 
and uh, it was a highly hierarchical in uh, in uh, in nature. Like you had to ask virtually permission to to go shower, permission to eat. If a chief resident saw you eating, and uh, you know things were not proper in rounds, you can rest assured there was what we called punishment call. So that was something that was created by by the people who ran that program that. You know, you were on call and somebody else screwed, screwed something up, that person would take your call. So it fostered a lot of animosity among the residents. So if somebody more senior was doing in house call, they would just be perusing the charts and uh, basically trying to find something went wrong so they could turf the call on somebody else. So it, it was very, um, it, was, it was not a good, a, a good experience, but I made great friends that I'm friends, you know, I'm friends with until today and definitely teaches you how to, how to be smart. And uh, I challenge any anesthesiologist to try to cancel my cases today <laughs> because of that. So, yeah, but uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know about the, about the many stories. I mean, uh, there's just so many out there. there's Is there so, any, so any particular one you've heard that you, you would like to bring up? And I, can I, hear the I wouldn't put you on the spot like No, that. you can put me on the spot. I mean, our chair, our chair used to have this great story. Like, he, he is a very odd person. He's great. He helped me a lot. But he used to say about this case, like, we were doing shunts and whatnot. It would be taking a while. He would say, no, my fastest shunt is seven minutes. And he used to say about, all the time about the seven-minute shunt and whatnot. And then... Uh, then at one point he said, yeah, but now that I recall it, when I left, I remember they were waking the kid up and I had forgotten to internalize the distal end of the shunt. So then I, I got out of the library, went quickly while they were waking the kid up and uh, I, I just basically put the shunt into the belly. <laughs> so that's sort of, of crazy stuff. But that's from another time, another place. This sort of stuff doesn't happen there anymore. So, yeah. yeah. I think I feel like we, the time we train... Uh, it will be the equivalent of how was uh, neurosurgery training here in the U.S. maybe 20 years ago. I say even more than that, probably even like, f- like 50, 60 years ago because it was lagging behind. Because there was there was no, like, uh, uh, no residency uh, work hour regulation. Mm, zero, um, yeah. Like charting documentations. Also, there, there wasn't, like, uh, a true enforcement on that. Uh, zero. Uh, Medical liability wasn't a thing. Well, there's no tort there, so that is very helpful. It's a Swiss system, so. And essentially, uh, the 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 mindset we had is uh, like throughout residency, but particularly as junior residents, where you is is you gotta like you gotta do what you gotta do to make it happen, right? Yeah. Right. And so it was like we used to learn how to run CT scanners because. Uh, uh, it, it was it, like the tech can be found. You learn. You learn how to do it. Yeah. You learn how to do it. So like we we had to we intubated our own patients like lines. We you, you set up vents. We used to run uh, CT scanners. Yeah. We used to uh, like uh, there's this uh, interesting story. One of my co-residents. So there was one institute um, uh, that was it's a hospital complex, but there was one institute that was uh, maybe three four blocks away. And uh, from from the main uh, from the main building, and they didn't have they didn't have CT scanners there, and we had a full uh, neurosurgery ward, uh, and it wasn't uncommon like you need a patient that is admitted is pre-op for the next day, and you had to rely a lot a lot of on your like 
friends, internal medicine oh, yeah. friends to come yeah. and pre-op the patient for like you. Buying yeah. food for, for nurses, buying pizza for your fellow residents. You go, hey, yeah. man, I'll and buy you it was interesting. There's one, there's, I think there's one patient needed like a CT scan pre-op. And uh, I was... Uh, I was leaving the hospital. I was during the main hospital. So I was leaving the hospital. It was about like 11.30 p.m. midnight. And I'm, as I walk out, out of the hospital, I see my co-resident driving an ambulance. <laughs> <laughs> and he turns into the, the entrance of the ED, kind of, it's a big ambulance. So he kind of run into the, the, the sidewalk. And, kind of, the curb. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell are you doing? Like no man, like I need the CT scan done done for tomorrow. Oh, you're in the letter. There was a there was an ambulance parked outside, <laughs> but there was no driver, so he essentially put I the patient know. in. And so that bad. was the type of thing we, we had to do. No, it was so bad. Like we had to get pre-op clearance, so those were completely unnecessary. So you would you would bribe and get people to do all sorts. So I had a former girlfriend who was an internal medicine resident. So then she just, so we had this yellow form, which was like the preoperative clearance form. So at one point I say, hey, you know, he said, well, if you go out to dinner with me, then I'll stamp some forms, some blank forms, I'll give it to you. So I, I did that. Then there was another time, remember, there's the CP kid in the ER. I mean, you had to take care of all the discharges and whatnot. Mm. And the chief, and I was in the hospital for five days, and the chief said, you know, you don't leave until this kid leaves. So, you know, you just, I just went there, I just talked to the mom, said, you know, oh my gosh, I, we need you to leave. Like, I've been in the hospital for five days. And she said, well, we don't have a wheelchair. So you, I went there and I figured out some wheelchair. So then, okay, so here's the wheelchair. Well, I don't have anybody to, to put the kid on the wheelchair. There, there are no nurses. So you go, you pick up the kid, you put there. Say, well, I have, we have to go get a bus and the bus stop is like three blocks away. So uh, don't worry, I'll, I'll take you. So you wheel the patient over to the bus stop. And then, like, oh, I don't have any, way, any means of putting the patient in the bus. So I said, so I, you stop the bus, you flag the bus, you get the patient, put the patient, the goddamn wheelchair in the bus. You put them, say, well, over there, I don't have anybody to take the, the, the kid out of the bus. I said, I don't care now, you're out of the hospital. <laughs> so they put the kid in the bus and left. So it was, it was bad, but, I mean, eventually work got done, and uh, I'm glad things are different. I mean, these things are funny to look at now, but... It wasn't in, that funny. In, in reality, it, it, no, it's no. not that funny there, and uh, I, I feel sorry for the people who have to rely on such a system. Well, uh, gentlemen, thank you both so much for your time, uh, both for myself and on behalf of my co-host, Dr. Mike Wang, who unfortunately couldn't be with us. I'm honored to have you both on the podcast. Thanks. No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.